the day after the election, I went to get dressed and I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, you just look fatter today. You just look less attractive now that oh, no. now that our president thinks that way. And, oh my God. And I felt all that day and that week really aware of being a woman. Welcome to episode one of the second season of Fog at Bay. I'm your host, Ben Mansky, and that was Hannah and Tess, two female neuroscience graduate students in the Medical Scientist Training Program, or MSTP. In today's episode, we will join their conversation about what it means to be women in a still very much male-dominated field, science. First, they explore how women are evaluated, touching on the appearance of confidence as well as appearance in general. They then discuss traditionally feminine qualities and how they can be strengths in the lab environment. And they'll end with a discussion of why implementing system-wide improvements to foster gender equality is so difficult. We hope these two students' experiences give you a glimpse into the lives of female scientists and why this topic still needs more honest conversation. Here's Hannah and Tess. I'm Hannah. I am a fourth-year MSTP. I mostly just think of myself as a second-year grad student, though, now. I'm 26 years old, and I recently got married. (laughs) Hi, I'm Tess. I'm a fifth-year MD-PhD student, which means I'm in my third year in the lab. I'm also studying neuroscience. Um, Both Hannah and I are in systems neuroscience, so we're in similar fields. Tess is... I've known Tess for... Five years? We met the day you came to interview. Yeah. 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 And Tess is officially my my big sib in the program. She's helped me a lot. So we're women. (laughs) And um, there's been a lot of talk recently about what it's like to be a woman in America. Um, Why do we need women? Why should there be more women faculty? It's not an easy question for me to answer recently discovered in conversation with men. Mm -hmm. Friends in computer science, Mm -hmm. one of them asked me, but you should just take the best candidate for the job. Mm -hmm. Are you going to choose a woman? Like, especially if you're working in the health science field Mm -hmm. and say every year you go without some new drug or something, people are dying, Mm -hmm. then you should feel a sense of real humanitarian urgency. Mm and then set up this artificial scenario where there's somebody who's a woman but is worse. And then we talked also about where they're equal, equal, exactly the the same. Mm -hmm. That's an easier, I feel like I can make a better argument for diversity in that case. And I also objected to this general unidimensional, worse, better Mm -hmm. thing. What would you say? Have you have you had talks like this? I haven't had that specific talk, talk before. The way that I tend to approach it is to do exactly what you suggested, is that you don't have to accept the problem in the way that people phrase it. And so I think that when asked what to do if you have two candidates where the woman is worse, but you would like to have more women in the department, I think that my first question is, what do you mean by worse? Yeah. You know, Did you come up with some perfect metric by which you can predict somehow how 
this person is going to contribute to your department and what impact they're going to have on your field. But most likely, you are coming up with some completely subjective measure, which has, unfortunately, a lot to do with how comfortable you are with this person. So, mm -hmm. um, if we go back and examine the tools that you're actually using to make your decisions, maybe we can realize a little bit more easily. You don't even know how to evaluate people, and we don't have good measures of evaluating people's body of work. It's also something I talk about with my husband, who's a physicist, an unkempt physicist, <laughs> um, <laughs> and irresistible. Um, <laughs> I think that one of the nice things about being a woman in science is that there's much less of an expectation for us to do traditionally feminine things. Mm -hmm. It's not seen as a negative if we look unkempt, for example, <laughs> we blend right in. Um, and <laughs> if anything, uh, I think that having a more masculine appearance certainly, for some reason, just gives you more credibility sometimes. I, I definitely, I wouldn't, I would never wear a dress to give a presentation no. or a skirt, but I did on inauguration day wear a skirt mm -hmm. for this reason. It's the only time I've ever worn a skirt to lab. Mm -hmm. And I thought one thing that I can do is to remain committed to my career and make it work and hold on to my idea of who I like to be as a complete person, including being a woman, the whole time, so that at the end I'm not like a manified version <laughs> of myself. So I, I did that to say, like, I'm here, I'm me, I'm, you know, I'm in school, I'm trying to be a scientist, I'm, mm -hmm. and I'm wearing a skirt, mm -hmm. I'm a lady. <laughs> but I, I think that goes back to this issue of it being hard to figure out how to present yourself. I have been told that I should change the way I present myself, that I should project more confidence. Um, and that's very hard for me because I really dislike talking about anything if I don't feel like I have some direct experience of it or a real thing to contribute to a conversation. Mm -hmm. I have been told by mentors, male mentors, two of them, um, once in undergrad and once since, that I should speak more and speak more loudly, and when I do speak, I should act more confident. And I've heard a lot of women say that they feel like they have to push themselves to keep up with the, the number of comments that men make or the volume with which they speak or the just, con just blusteriness. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard for me because the powerful, intelligent people that I really admire, men and women, are the people who speak infrequently, uh, but say, you know, very insightful things. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to be one of those people, but that's kind of at odds with this attitude that I should basically impress through verbal output. I don't know. I, I should also say, I should have said in my too long introduction that I'm also a raging introvert. So. <laughs> yep. <laughs> something we have in common in undergrad I had professors who it only happened twice who would say I mean with two different people unfortunately multiple times for each but um, <laughs> would congratulate me on how well I'd done on the exam mm -hmm. for example and then say and you're also so pretty 
or like or really? and how do you have time to do this and you have a relationship you you also I assume take care of your boyfriend and people said that to you yeah wow <laughs> so those those I just didn't know how to respond mm-hmm. and what made me most upset is I responded in a way that was acceptable I I just said Oh, thank you, and smiled and mm-hmm. hated myself. <laughs> it's difficult when somebody compliments you, particularly on the way you look, right? Mm-hmm. You say, no, thank you, or no, or I think, you know, I think medical school taught me tools for dealing with things like that, but it, this happened before that time, so. I think it's, I think the compliments that are most frustrating are the ones that are, feel like backhanded insults. Right. (laughs) When people say, oh, it's so nice that you did this, I could never do that. And not sufficiently, like, (laughs) detail-oriented. Or some other horribly coded thing for petty. Yeah. Um, And all I wanted to help them, you know, it's like, well, I do it because it's not hard. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And because you have been allowed to think that it's something beneath you. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I do want to point it out to be like, hello, I made an agenda because as a woman, I'm overtrained to care about everybody else's feelings and time. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Except that would be horribly inappropriate and it would make everybody uncomfortable. And yet that would be very satisfying at times. It's a fine line between wanting people to find it insightful and funny and wanting them to feel guilty. I don't want them to feel guilty. I kind of want them to feel guilty. (laughs) I (laughs) do. Um, I I mean I I do. That's it's a direct theft of our time. It is. There are things that are stereotypically female, which are also strengths, and that sometimes it's a great advantage to actually know how to use them and to use them quite explicitly. Um, but this is something that I go back and forth on so much because sometimes it's to my advantage to be well organized, to be able to communicate better with other people, to you know also be able to organize our environment. Like you know, I am the only person who goes through like a checklist for, for surgery, for example, and make sure that everything is there. Um, and sometimes it's a great advantage because there's I mean there's a reason why there's things that are associated with like running a tight household in some way, that it lets things continue moving smoothly. But also, some of those skills end up feeling like they pigeonhole me into doing things that are a gigantic waste of time. It's hard to know when to stop doing that, though. That's often the role that women play in their romantic relationships with men. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a problem if you're with somebody who never, never cares about you know, setting your social engagements or doing the dishes or mm-hmm. whatever. I think that's killed a couple of relationships for me in the past. <laughs> By being with someone who just didn't care? Yeah, and then, like, I'm just going to let things fall apart. <laughs> and then they just stayed apart. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the worst weeder system, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I, I feel like I'm so resentful of that. I've... I feel that recently I've been more resentful and less proud as a human being mm-hmm. of what a woman's role is in our society oh, with yeah. regard to this this thing mm-hmm. in particular. I think that one of the traditional female strengths is trying to 
get groups of people together to come to a consensus and to communicate and to translate between different parties. And so I am hoping that that comes through in a professional sense. Yeah. In addition to a personal thinking. Mm-hmm. But I have no idea if that's going to be the case. I think so. I don't know. <laughs> I worry that I am shortchanging myself when I think that sometimes, though. Because I think that that puts me in the role of navigating and being more of a matchmaker between people and domains or between people and other people, actually. Yeah. Rather than really focusing on, like, what is my interest, actually? What do I want to learn about? What do I care about? I think that as women, we're so overtrained to think about what everybody else in the room wants and how to make everybody else comfortable mm-hmm. that we often neglect ourselves. Yeah, I think we just have to be careful because what, what power to have that awareness and mm-hmm. then also the motivation to protect your own interests. Mm-hmm. Like, just because you're aware of what everybody else wants doesn't mean we have to give it to them. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. It is something that I recognize as one of my internal subroutines that I wish I could turn off mm-hmm. sometimes. So just like put the blinders on to everybody else and think, what do I want? In the next section, Hannah and Tess explore why gender equality is so hard to establish. Just a heads up, they'll make a reference to QUALS, which is short for Qualifying Exam. It's an exam that every second-year neuroscience student must pass to advance into PhD candidacy. There's some specific things that I could lead to systems improvement that feel tangential or awkward or inappropriate or out of place sometimes. But for example, when I was putting together a qualifying exam committee, it was important to me that there be at least one woman on it. And that is unfortunately not the case for my thesis committee. But I think that it would be it would feel completely out of place for the department to ask that to be the case for every qualifying exam committee. All of your committees have to have one woman on them because it's completely orthogonal to what actually, to the qualities that you want and the things that you're looking for in your committee. Whether or not they're a male or a woman doesn't really matter in the scientific perspective that they are bringing to your education. What does matter for me is that there is some consistent venue in which students and faculty sit down and think, do we have enough women here? Like, do we have enough women here to be doing this very, very standard, straightforward thing? Do we have enough women here participating in every angle of these students' education? But I would never have this conversation with one of my male mentors. I had one who who said, it's good to have a diverse committee, maybe you should have a woman. Mm -hmm. Only one of like five or six that I've talked to so far. It would be it would be very uncomfortable. I think that everybody, probably everybody would say, yeah, that's fine if you want to do that. Mm-hmm. But, and maybe this is just me, but I would read that as like, um, and that's a non-substantive kind of soft decision you're making. Mm-hmm. That's sort of unprofessional mm-hmm. almost. That's what I would hear. Yeah. And I would be worried that then they're opinion would not be taken as seriously, yeah. consequently. That they are the token women on my committee. Right. And that they're there to advise me on my fashion. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, I think it's hard to ask for those types of institutional changes, though, that do seem orthogonal to the issue itself. And yet, the issue itself is actually illegal to address directly. Mm. You can't put out a job search for specifically female faculty. You can't say that that's a biasing factor in your decision-making. 
Mm-hmm. So if there's no way to specifically address the issue, the only way to make it something that needs to be solved is to slide it into something else that has does have to be solved. Yeah, basically, is to append it somehow to something that people actually do care about. Mm-hmm. I think that ends up being a much, much, much bigger battle, though. We hate setting up new systems. We hate figuring out what rules we want to go by. We just want to get better at playing the game. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to change the game than to change the than to get become a better player at yeah. it. Um, and so I think often with things related to gender, we're asking people to change the game, and that's why people are so resistant because they're good at the game that's in front of them already, and mm-hmm. they don't want to go back to the basics. Yeah. I'm, I, I'd like to think that I can talk about this with anyone and that I would be able to frame it in a way that they can relate to. And it's also funny that I think that it's my responsibility to frame it that way. Because I am aware that I come from certain minority groups, that I am part of certain minority groups, but I have a voice and I have a place within more privileged society that I have a responsibility to represent in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, not to represent people's perspectives, which I don't know and can't understand, and I'm not, you know, I do not contain the multitudes, um, but in trying to point out that I am a minority, that it is a problem, that people do need to look for broader perspectives, I do feel responsible for that, mm-hmm. in a way that I think some of my white male counterparts certainly do not feel responsible. I don't think they think it's their responsibility to figure out what you know, an African-American student would want. And I think they're excused from that because they're also told that they will never know what that's like. Right. But yeah. unfortunately, not knowing what that's like and not being able to do it yourself shouldn't excuse you from actually doing the work to figure that out. Mm-hmm. But it does in our current society. We want to thank Hannah and Tess for opening up a view into their personal lives and for their lively discussion on their graduate student experiences. This episode was written and produced by Leigh Kodama, Dimitri Rumis, Anna Lipkin, and myself, Ben Mansky. The music was provided by Poddington Bear. In our next episode, we will move up the academic totem pole and join a conversation between two female faculty members talking about how different but also similar concerns keep persisting for women, even at the faculty level. Of course, there are many other male-dominated fields, not just areas of science and academia, and we want to hear your stories, too. Contact us by emailing us at thefogatbay at gmail.com, or find us on Facebook to share your experiences of what it means to be in the minority. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more.